you. Hey, I want to introduce you to someone, uh, one of our members you may not know. Um, A.T., this is A.T. Ross. A.T., could you stand just for a second, if you don't mind? That's A.T. Ross, and I'm going to tell you uh, some stuff about him. A.T. is a member of our first class in this church for a long time, so uh, he doesn't usually make his way around here, and that's why I want you to get to know him, and I'll tell you why. Uh, A.T. retired from the Houston Fire Department some years ago. He served for over 30 years, and he retired, by God's grace, healthy. Uh, as a, a person in that vocation, he uh, was subject to many dangers and all the rest, and thank God he retired well, healthy and well. Um, so it wasn't a result of any pathology that caused him to be interested in health and nutrition. He just got interested in it. And part of the reason he did is because as a church member here, he, all of us, we share our prayer requests, as we should, for all things, including our physical challenges. And A.T. would grieve, though he would surely pray. He has learned a number of things over the years which he thought could perhaps be helpful to folks who are struggling with various chronic illnesses. And so A.T. has kind of educated himself over the last several years, and I'm not exaggerating to say is really quite an expert on, uh, uh, on nutrition and the effect of what we're eating on us. Uh, and A.T. has met with Brother John. We know the reason I, I'm saying this is I know there's a lot of strange things going around, but he ain't one of them. He, <laughs> he's been a long-term church member. He and his wife, Kathy, we know them for years and years, safe. He's not trying to sell anything. He doesn't need your money. He's retired and God has provided for he and his wife. There's no hidden agenda. He's not trying to sell vitamins or anything like that. That's not the business we're in. This is not Christian TV. Um, but it's a kind of a sad thing to have such wonderful resources in our church and yet uh, our church members not know about the resources. A.T. has volunteered to be available for anyone who would like to meet privately and just hear from him on uh, things he has learned over the years and things that might be quite helpful to you in living in a more skillful and healthy way. And so I have the liberty of giving you A.T.'s cell number if you're interested. You just approach me if you can't find A.T. because you're not usually in church this long. I'm really glad you stayed for the, see, there's life here after the first hour. So, um, um, A.T. has no, he has no negative agenda. He's surely not uh, trying to discourage us from benefiting from the expertise of doctors. But, folks, can we be honest? Uh, I'll say this because I, uh, I don't want to rope A.T. into this. Um, we go to our doctors when we're sick. I got that. Um, but they don't tell us a whole lot about how to stay well. They treat illness. In fact, one of the physicians in our church told me one time, well, he was the chief uh, at a medical branch of NASA. He was one of our members for a long time, so this is no slouch. He told me, uh, and he has learned the things, not in medical school, but he has learned the same kinds of things A.T. has on his own. He told me in medical school we took one class, three-credit class on nutrition. That's it. He said we treat disease, but we don't really know how to, we don't know anything about preventative approaches and diet and all the rest. So A.T. has learned quite a lot uh, about that. So if you're someone who's struggled with some chronic issues and traditional medicine has provided no relief, you still have headaches, whatever the deal is, um, nobody's making any crazy claims, but maybe you, you would want to talk to A.T. about some more natural approaches to things. By natural, I mean God-given, consistent with science, biblically uh, consistent approaches of a, in some cases, non-toxic variety. Uh, our class director in our first hour, John Castales, and his wife Pam, Pam got a cancer diagnosis, and they visited with AT. Please don't misunderstand. I, I don't want to make some outlandish claim across the board. I just want to tell you in their case, they decided not to go the traditional route in treating the cancer, and, uh, and they did some other things that AT suggested. And, she, by God's grace, is healthy and well now. Now, that is not the approach to all things. Please don't misunderstand. God is the approach to all things. And when it's time for us to go, we go. I don't care how much carrot juice you drink. When it's time to go, 
So we're not, and by the way, Nate, he'll tell you this, the purpose of what he has learned is not to prolong our life as an end in itself, it's to be more effective for as long as we can for the glory of Almighty God. And folks, I don't want to hurt anyone, but a lot of us are kind of disqualified from long-term Christian service because we're sick. We're too sick. And sometimes the sickness is kind of self-induced that we don't want to admit to it. It's because of what we're eating. If you knew how much sugar we ingest, I mean, you might as well drink poison for crying out loud. So there are just some practical things. Now, A.T.'s an expert, and he's very wise. He knows for the uninitiated, you might want to get into this incrementally. So he's not going to dump the whole trip on you. It takes time and money to be healthy, although far less money than we're paying our insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies, I'll tell you that. So he's very, very balanced in uh, in his approach. But folks, sometimes we're praying for, for ourselves or various people for the healthfulness, and yet that very person we're praying for is consuming things uh, th- that are, are making them sick. It's kind of like praying an inconsistent or unbelieving prayer. Oh, God, I am violating your laws of, laws of health, but I want you to make me healthy anyway. We know we, no, God won't do that, you see. So a lot of us, uh, sadly, are sicker than we ought to be. Very interesting. And with American medicine being reputed to be the best in the world, there's more incidence of cancer and heart disease and all the rest than ever before. Um, so what, what might have been thought to be hocus-pocus and weird years ago, hmm, I think it's weird now to keep taking antibiotics after antibiotics after antibiotics after antibiotics. Good night. They're killing all the good stuff in us. It's no wonder we can't fight off stuff anymore and our immune systems are down. What if God has provided uh, a natural antibiotics that don't have the toxic effect? Anyway, I don't know about these, but that guy does. So anyway, he's available. Uh, yes, Mary. Uh, uh, Mary, I didn't know about that. Thank you for that testimony. We just want you to feel safe about that guy. He's one of our own, and so you'll be in, in good hands. Thank you, A.T., for coming. A.T. played at San Jack on two national championship basketball teams right there. And he met his wife at San Jack. She was a cheerleader. She's much, much better looking than he is. (laughs) Anyway, thank you, brother. God bless you. If you're interested in making contact, you can stop him around the church. Just if you can reach up that high, just tap him on the shoulder. Or if you don't have time now, I will... um, well that's are you can I give it out you sure okay okay hang on one second I got it in my fancy thing right here are you sure about this okay you'll be sorry no I'm kidding I'm kidding okay here we go 281 281 414 281-414-2252. Call any time, day or night. <laughs> I don't have a phone number anymore. Yeah. I'm, I, I refer all my calls to A.T. So this is A.T. Ross, R-O-S-S. A stands for Arthur, Arthur T. Ross. There he is right there. Okay, thank you very much for making yourself available. It means a lot. It means a lot. Okay, now that we're finished with our infomercial, it's time for the Bible. Now, we have been in 1 Samuel, as you know, and will be, but indirectly, today. Last week, we read through 1 Samuel chapter 22. Uh, and uh, we're going to do a little something other than 1 Samuel 23 today. But before, let me just um, summarize what has happened. David, a young shepherd boy, came to be anointed as king, but never yet resided in the palace. 
because he was a fugitive fleeing the pursuit of the present king, his father-in-law named Saul. Saul was becoming crazed and even demonized and sought the death of David. David fled hither and yon. On one occasion, even, we read about this, he went to Philistine territory, thinking Saul surely won't find him there. But the Philistines would have killed David because David killed their hero, Goliath. So in Philistine territory, David feigned madness. He began to dribble on his beard and do all the things that you would associate with a psychologically unstable person. The Philistines bought it and said, no sense messing with David, he's lost it. He's no threat to anyone. Then on another occasion, David went in Jerusalem to a place called Nob, N-O-B, city of Nob. It's on the Mount of Olives. You can go to its ancient place today. Today, on the site of the city of Nob, it's called Mount Scopus, is Hebrew University. It's an academic institution. Nob existed uh, on the northern part of the Mount of Olives. It was called the city of priests because it is likely the tabernacle was there until the temple was accessible. David went there and met with one of the priests named Ahimelech. Ahimelech. He told Ahimelech he needs help. Ahimelech, the priest said, why do you need help? Why are you alone? Why don't you have food or weaponry? David lied. David said, I'm on a top secret mission sent by King Saul. Can't tell you about it. I'd have to kill you if I told you. I made that up. But, 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 but he said, I, I can't really, uh, I, I had to leave quick to fulfill the mission of the king, so I don't have anything. Can you help me? So Ahimelech does three things. He gives him food from the table of showbread. Sort of a no-no, but anyway, he does. He gives him bread. And the weapon he gives David happened to be Goliath's sword, which was being kept here at Nob, the city of priests. And then the third thing he did was to pray for him. While David was transacting this exchange with Ahimelech and having conversation, someone was listening in on it. That someone's name is Doeg the Edomite, meaning from Edom, which is in present-day southern Jordan. The Edomites are descendants of Esau, not an Israelite. Doeg is there in earshot of all David and Ahimelech has been speaking about. There was kind of a check in David's spirit, like he should maybe have been more discreet about his conversation, but he didn't. Later on, Doeg, hearing this, decides, I'll keep this information to myself until an opportune time when I could use it for my advantage. Well, that opportunity came up pretty quickly. Saul is in his home area, Gibeah. He's seated with a spear in his hand because he is becoming increasingly paranoid. And he starts a rant against all of his soldiers. And he even indicts his own son, Jonathan, Jonathan. Even my son, Jonathan, can't be trusted. He has his secret conversations with David, my enemy. And all of you cannot be trusted. And one guy steps up, Doeg the Edomite. This is his time. O king, says he, let me inform you of a conversation I was made privy to uh, between David and Ahimelech. And he told the king David had received helps. The priest helped him, supported David. Not only that, David succeeded in turning the priest against you, O king. They're conspiring against you. Well, they don't need to say that to someone already suffering from paranoia. That really feeds it. So King Saul sends for the priests from the city of Nob to come to his place in Gibeah. He indicts them there on false charges and calls upon his soldiers to kill them. But they cannot bring themselves to do it, knowing these are the priests of God. 
Doeg steps up. He said, I'll do it. And he did. He killed 85 priests. And his bloodthirsty intentions were not quenched in that alone. Then he went to the city of Nob and killed all the wives and children of all the priests. It was a horrific tragedy. Ahimelech was slaughtered, but one of his sons, a man named Abiathar, survived. Abiathar fled for his life and made his way to David seeking safety. He found David and told David what had transpired. And in 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 22, last week, we read what David said. He said, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have brought about the death of every person in your father's household. Can you imagine what he's feeling? The guilt, the condemnation, uh, anxiety, fear. On top of the massacre, which he feels somewhat responsible for, his future is very much in doubt. Though king, he has no expectation of ever being a resident of the palace. He doesn't know what his future holds, whether he'll live. He can't even go home. He can't be with his wife. His wife was Saul's daughter. She had to let him out through a window to escape. This guy is totally cut off from all mooring points. Can you imagine his emotional state of affairs? Some of you have experienced things similar. What do you do to find relief at the peak of intense emotion like that? What did David do? Well, this might surprise you, but I'll tell you what he did. He wrote a song of all things. He wrote a song, and in the process of writing the song, he found a measure of relief from the intensity of these horrific emotions. And here's the amazing news. We have a copy of it, though written thousands of years ago in Houston, Texas. We have a copy of the song David wrote. Here's the title of it. Psalm 52. Psalm 52. So the reason we're not directly in 1 Samuel today is I want to show you the song David wrote that corresponded to 1 Samuel 21 and 22, which we had previously read. So if you would turn to Psalm 52, you'll see what David wrote. Psalm 52. It begins for the choir director. Do you have that? You see, this is a song. David intended for this song to be sung. But as you'll see, not for performance or entertainment purposes. No, it had a teaching purpose behind it. And the song, David knew, could convey truth as effectively as a sermon depending on the lyrics of the song. If the lyrics were meaningful, then truth could be communicated musically. And so he's giving direction to the person who would lead a choir in presenting this song for the choir director. And David gives a hint on how it's supposed to be done. Look, a mass skill of David. Do you have that? Good, you should. If you don't, you need a new Bible. Maskil, what does it mean? It's a Hebrew word which probably means something like to understand or to ponder. What does it mean? David is saying, I'm not writing this song to tickle your ears. This is not for entertainment. It's for edification. I want you to slow down and ponder. Understand the message which is vital and which is being communicated to you through the vehicle of music. The music is subsidiary to the message. Today, we're reversing it. Today, we are making the message subservient to the music. So today, you got a lot of music that is of great entertainment value, but you can't even hear the words. Now, what good is a song whose words you can't hear? Now, that's okay at a concert. 
But church is not a concert hall. It's church. It's for the edification of the believer. We ought to sing more mass skills, not just stuff that tickles the ear. Someone told me, what musical form do you prefer? Asked me. I said, I prefer songs to God. I don't care about the music. To be frank with you, it's the lyrics to me that are important. So in, a, in saying, by the way, the word masculine appears in the heading of 13 Psalms. This is more ballad-like. So it was not celebratory. It was not bombastic. It's reflective. In fact, the word masculine uh, very likely is a musical pointer given to the choir director so that the choir director had some notion of the cadence with which it was to be sung. Slow, meditatively, reflectively. That's what a masculine is. So it says, for the choir director, a masculine of David. Then, look what it says. When Doeg, the Edomite, came and told Saul and said to him, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. So you see, it's not conjecture when I say this was the song David wrote corresponding to the events in 1 Samuel 21 and 22. That's what it says right here. And what I just read you is inspired scripture. Did you know that? That's not an explanatory note added by your translators or publishers or editors. That's as inspired as is, are the words of the actual song. This heading is the inspired word of God. This is connected very specifically by God, not by me, to the events David experienced in 1 Samuel 21 and 22. That's why I wanted us to depart from it before going further so you can see how David is dealing with all the emotional upheaval in his life. He writes this song, and here it is, verse 1. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? Folks, he is speaking of Doeg. Why, Doeg, do you boast in evil, O mighty man? Now, why does David refer to him as a mighty man? Well, according to 1 Samuel 21, verse 7, which we read, it says, Now one of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's shepherds. He came to be quite elevated in Saul's inner court. He was the master of all of Saul's herdsmen. So he was mighty in that sense. But here you'll have to trust me. The sense in which David is using the term mighty man is sarcasm. It's good old Jewish sarcasm right here. Here's what David in essence is saying. Why do you boast in evil, O big shot? That's essentially what he's saying. You who you are too big for your britches. You're boasting, Mr. Big Shot. That's essentially what is going on over here. And then he says to him uh, next, the loving kindness of God endures all day long. What's he up to? Here you have this terrible influence, evil influence of the evildoer Doeg. You can't escape it. It's a harsh reality. It led to the massacre of dozens of people. David cannot enter into an altered state of consciousness. He has to accept the evil. But what really overwhelms even the evil is the enduring quality of the loving kindness of God. The evil and the evildoer have a shelf life. They will pass. But God's love endures forever. It says that right there. David says, I could focus on the badness of men, but I choose instead to focus on the goodness of God. And folks, this has really helped me to know how to handle the stuff going on today, which could really drive you down, make you quite cynical and pessimistic because there are evildoers on the thrones of many countries today. It's phenomenal to me. I don't know how they got there, but they done got there. And you could think that evil's on the throne until you realize, as did David, evil and evildoers have a shelf life. They don't endure forever, but God's loving kindness does. There are evildoers who are deliberately targeting and persecuting God's people, and you cry out to God, what's up? What's up is that God's love endures forever. He, his love remains undiminished. Now, this word loving kindness is one we've run into before. I told you it's the Hebrew word chesed, chesed. We can spell it C-H-E-S-E-D, but you don't pronounce it chesed. 
if you say chesed around the Jewish person, that Jewish person will be amused. It's chesed. An H sound in Hebrew is like It's like clearing your throat. Chesed. And it's a beautiful word. Listen, listen. It's not just mere erotic, you know, romantic love. Oh, no, no, it's much better. It, uh, it could be translated loyal love. I mean, though the recipient of God's love may be disloyal, he remains loyal in loving the disloyal <laughs> recipient. It means steadfast love. It means the kind of love that persists in spite of the unloveliness of the recipient thereof. It's a kind of love we can only associate with God. Ours is contingent love, contingent on the object of our love. No, God's is contingent on nothing but his grace and mercy. This is the chesed love. David, in the course of pouring out his heart musically in song, is reminding himself for sure of Doeg's horrible evil, but also of God's persistent chesed love, which endures all day long. Then in verse 2, David goes on, your tongue speaking to Doeg, devises destruction like a sharp razor, metaphor, sharp razor. Oh, worker of deceit. Doeg, people like him, plot the ruin of others. How do they bring it about? Words, accusatory words, slanderous words, deceitful words. David, uh, Doeg's words brought about the massacre. Doeg lied. Ahimelech was not disloyal to King Saul. David didn't coerce Ahimelech to turn against the king, but that's what Doeg reported. You know what that's called? Fake news. (laughs) Ancient fake news. Look at the effect of words. Look at how words led to the destruction of so many innocent people. Verse 3, you love evil more than good and falsehood more than than speaking what is right. To do evil is bad. To love evil is depravity. You can do evil enough that it takes you over. You can become enveloped by certain sinful habits so that you can't get free of it. You're in bondage to it. You're in a domain of darkness. And in it, You don't just commit sin, you love it. It's one thing to commit sin, it's another thing to love it. We're all susceptible to it. Doeg was subject to it. He didn't just do evil, he he loved it. But he didn't love good, he loved evil. But what about God? Which of the two does he love? So you have to answer that question. The first question is, is there a God? Legitimate question. I hope you come up with the most factual answer, the right answer. Is there a God? Uh, To save us time, I would just tell you, uh, yes, I believe there is a God. There is a God. But you can't stop there. Uh, Settling the question of God's existence, you have to settle the question of God's nature. The fact that God is just there is not enough. You're not done. After coming up with an answer to the existence of God, you've got to... Ask yourself, well, now that God who exists, what's he like? Again, to save us time, I'll tell you what he's like. He's good. The God who is, is good. Therefore, when one does what is bad, that one is ungodly. That one is offending the godliness of God. Sin. That one becomes subject to the wrath of God because God is holy. If I were to ask you, knowing of the existence of God and knowing of the goodness of God, how do you feel about that? How does it make you feel to know that God is good? Now, this is a rhetorical question. Just answer it to yourself. If you say, I feel good, knowing that God is good, good. If you say, I feel uncomfortable knowing that God is good, thank you for being honest. You've got a problem. We just found out something about you. If you're uncomfortable about God being good, it's probably because you ain't. Bad people don't want to draw near to a good God. Bad people want to run from a good God. Well, I have a solution. Stop being bad. Repent of it. 
say to a good God, I have sinned against you. I am sorry. It feels good for a season, but it really isn't good. But I believe you are. I have evidence. You sent your most precious son. What a good thing you did for one such as me. He suffered and died in my place. I want to cross over now from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of your beloved son. I accept Jesus as Savior. I encourage you to do that. If you do that, though you remain human and prone to sin, I understand that. You're not afraid about bringing the presence of a good God because you're under the umbrella of the perfect son, the Lord Jesus. You're safe with him. He's your refuge. If you don't feel safe with God, you ought to talk to one of us. You ought to talk to one of us because you can. In fact, he wants you to be. Now, after this statement, verse 3, David ends the thought with the word selah. Do you have that? Good. What's it mean? We think it means pause. We think it was a musical indicator in which David said to the choir director, stop singing, and to the orchestra director, stop playing. Take a deep breath. Take this in. Remember, this is a reflective song. You keep, you know, have things coming at you. You don't have time to... Th- David wants people to think, look at here, you've got options. There's good and there's evil. Which one are you inclined to? What do you think God is inclined to? Is there a discrepancy between you and God? David said, I want you to think about all this. He doesn't want this lyric to go in one ear and out the other. So he says, pause right now. Then he goes on, verse 4. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. Then in verse 5, he speaks about four actions God will take against the unrepentant evildoer. Count them with me. Look, verse 5. Here's the first. But God will break you down forever. That's the first response of God to the unrepentant evildoer. God will break you down forever. Here's the second. He will snatch you up. That's the second. Here's the third. And tear you away from your tent. And here's the fourth. And uproot you from the land of the living. What that means is the judgment of God on unrepentant evildoers is forever. It is their eternal and forever demise. They will be uprooted from the land of the living forever. And it is such a weighty matter that God, uh, David calls for another pause. Selah, once again. Take this in, the holy indignation of God. Look, if you're a saved person, someone to say, ask you, are you saved? You say, yes, I'm saved. Wouldn't it be fair for that person to ask as a follow-up question, what are you saved from? then how would you answer? I hope your answer would be, I am saved from the wrath of God. Now, that may not be your answer because we don't talk about that anymore. Why? Because that kind of brings down your attendance. (laughs) People don't want to hear about that, I'm telling you. But preachers of old spoke about it. Jonathan Edwards' most famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of a Benign God. Angry God. Now, why shouldn't he be angry? Sin offends his holiness. So when we're saved, we're saved from the wrath of God. How? Did God say, oh, never mind, it wasn't so bad? No, he didn't grade on a curve. He poured out his wrath, do us, on his son. That's why Jesus on the cross cried out, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? It wasn't due to his own sin. It's ours, which he bore. And as a result, he experienced the wrath of God, which we should have. But he was our substitute. Therefore, though we have a sin nature and do sin from time to time, we need not fear the wrath of God because the suffering Jesus went through, the volume of God's wrath he experienced was total and complete and doesn't need to be augmented by any stuff we do. Therefore, we are safe. He has cast all our sin behind his back. However, the person who is unrepentant and doesn't take Jesus as sin substitute, sin bearer, experiences this fourfold response of God and David finds it to be overwhelming because it's eternal and irreversible. And therefore he says, Selah, we got to pause. We got to take this in. This is serious business. And then it goes on in verse six. David says, the righteous will see in fear. Now, some of you are excluding yourself from that designation. I'm not righteous, you'll say. Are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. You've accepted Jesus as your Savior? Oh, absolutely. I worship him as my Savior, but I'm not righteous. You don't understand righteousness. Righteousness is not 
right living, it's right positioning. (laughs) If you are rightly related to a holy God, his righteousness is imputed to you. We don't have inherent righteousness. We can only pray for imputed righteousness. It's an accounting term. It means, let's say you have an accounting ledger, and and your ledger is just filled with debits. you got nothing in the bank, no money in the bank. If God's righteousness is imputed to you, it means it's put on your accounting ledger, and now you're in the credit column. Now, how does that happen? When you accept Jesus, the righteous one, his righteousness in our identification with him is imputed to our account, that doesn't mean we always live rightly. It means in the eyes of God, we have right standing. That's what biblical righteousness is. Not right being, right acting, right standing. If you're a Christian, therefore, let me make the case, you are a righteous one. I didn't say a sinless one. I said a righteous one because the righteousness of Christ has been put on your account. So this says, in a certain day in the future, those who are considered to be righteous ones will have three experiences at the time of God's judgment uh, on evildoers. Look, we will first see. Second, we will fear. Third, we will laugh at him, not at God. We will laugh at the one being judged. Now, that's an interesting collection of responses. We'll see it, so just wait. Justice will be done. You know, today we go crazy at unspeakable, outrageous wrongs uh, unchecked. Don't worry, they'll be put in check. You will see God's divine righteousness unfold. You'll see. Second, you'll fear. Not in the sense of shaking in your boots fear. You'll have... You and I, awesome respect for our Father who has the authority and holiness to carry out his justifiable justice on evildoers. And then third, we will laugh at him, the evildoer. Now, here's where we got to pause, because I think we may be faced here with an ethical dilemma. We will laugh at the misfortune of the evildoer. Tell you what I mean when we, I say we have an ethical problem. Do you remember Osama bin Laden? He was found and neutralized by Navy SEALs, right? You do not have to answer this out loud. Another rhetorical question. Did you rejoice over it? Do you have the permission to rejoice over it? You don't, don't answer. So, man, I'm, I'm telling you. You would say, no, of course not. I can't because Jesus said, New Testament teaching, love your enemies. Pray for them. Not laugh, not gloat over their demise. So you might say, no, I have no right to laugh at them. Yet, I can read to you Proverbs 11, verse 10, which says, when it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices, and when the wicked perish, there is joyful shouting. Can you see the dilemma here? Some verses say... uh, you know, and God says elsewhere, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. You know, this kind of, how do you pull this all together? It's one of those biblical apparent inconsistencies, which is only an apparent inconsistency because we're quite limited. But I think we can resolve this particular one. Uh, first of all, when it says we will laugh at him, the misfortune of the evildoer, this is not the laughter like when you heard a really good joke. Or when you're entirely amused. No, no, no. This is not the laughter of derision or of gloating. No, this is the laughter of therapeutic relief and release. When you see God's justice prevailing over those who otherwise would continue in their unchecked evil. It's kind of the laugh of relief. It's not the laugh of amusement. You know this person's destiny is sealed for eternity apart from God. That's the first thing. The second thing is, when the Bible does uh, say uh, there's joyful shouting when uh, when the unrighteous are judged, we have no right to laugh over the misfortune of someone who has personally offended us. So your next-door neighbor is playing the music too loud. You get in a big argument. Then your next-door neighbor gets in an automobile accident. You do not have a right to clap your hands, jump up and down, and say, I'm rid, rid of him and his music. No, this is talking about not an offense against an individual. It's more of a corporate offense. When an evildoer offends the holiness of Almighty God, 
When an evildoer is in outright rebellion against God and therefore is manifesting it by specifically targeting God's people, when that one is dealt with by God, yeah, we will see. We will respect our Father and we will go, oh, we can experience the uh, laughter of relief in that God uh, dealt with that evil doer. So this has nothing to do with personal offense. How do I know that? Well, let me read to you Romans chapter 12, verses 17 to 19. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Now, this bugs me. Because as a Christian, we don't have this option. It really bugs me, and I'll tell you why. When when a bad person takes something from you, let's say a perpetrator of abuse has taken away your dignity, your personhood, the only thing you have left is anger. The person stripped you of everything. You don't want to let go of your anger and hate because it gives you a sense of power. Of course, it's not a sense of power. It's really a covering for woundedness. You can get in touch with your woundedness, but the anger will end up mastering you. Someone said uh, this kind of anger and towards someone, even someone who's perpetrated quite a, an injustice against you is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Doesn't affect the perpetrator at all. Just robs you of life. So God says here, Romans 12, don't pay back evil to evil for anyone. God's taken away that option. It's not an option for us. In fact, he says here, respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And then it says, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Someone has done you wrong. You got two options. You can be the justice maker or you can let God. If you take vengeance, then you're not, as the text says, leaving room for the wrath of God. You're squeezing God out. He won't be crowded. If you want to try to be a justice maker, he'll say, have at it. Or you can let him and wait for the day when you see and fear and laugh at all those unrepentant wrongdoers who have foisted upon you and any other of God's people great evil and injustice. So we don't have a right to respond to a personal offense in kind. We're not allowed to do that. Never take your own revenge, beloved. Leave room for the wrath of God. Okay. Now in verse 7, Paul concludes, uh, Paul, David concludes his comments about the evildoer. Behold the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and was strong in his evil desire. Now, I'll tell you what happens. When you don't make God your refuge and you, you have a non-God substitute, in this case, riches, wealth, you have to keep propping up your God because that's what you're depending on. That's why people who are tied to the accumulation of wealth can't stop because as much wealth as they have today, they have to increase it tomorrow to keep propping up their God. If whatever your God is, you got to keep propping up your God. If you have the true God, all you have to do is praise him. If you have a false God, you got to keep propping up the false God. So if it's sex, one affair is not going to cut the mustard. You got to keep doing it. A little pornography is not going to work. You'll be hooked. If that's your God, you got to you got to give life to your God. If it's uh, compulsive uh, spending, one purchase is not going to do it. You got to keep making purchases. Remember, that's whatever your God is. You have to feed. You have to feed. But with the true God, you just feed him on praise. In fact, the Bible says that is the sacrifice of our lips. Praise to God. We just remind God who he is. You are great. You are good. You are holy. But if it's a false God, you got to feed that God. And so David is saying here, the evil one who has not made God his refuge is trusting in other stuff and Etc., etc. Okay, all that. First seven verses. Now, verses eight and nine. David contrasts himself from this evildoer, which is remarkable because David 
Is this the same David? Isn't this the same David who had an adulterous affair with Bathsheba, another guy's wife? And isn't this the same David who plotted to have her husband killed? Yeah. So this is very refreshing. It's not that he just missed a few choir practices, right? This is like some major sin. Yet he's distinguished from the unrepentant evildoer. It's not that he hasn't committed acts of evil or sin, but he threw himself upon the chesed, love of God, and found mercy and grace to help in time of need. He didn't find sinless perfection. Nobody is saying that. Again, that's not what biblical righteousness is. It's right standing. He came to be rightly related to God based upon imputed righteousness. And so David could distinguish himself from ones like Doeg. So he says in verse 8, But as for me, I'm like a green olive tree in the house of God. So if you've been to Israel, you've seen tons of olive trees, eaten lots of olives. In fact, you're probably, after a trip to Israel, sick of olives. But an olive tree is a very enduring tree. That's the point. David is saying, ah, the evil man like Doeg will be uprooted from the land of the living. But my roots go down deep like a green olive tree, you see? It's kind of what he's saying. Now, he says, like an olive tree in the house of God. What does that mean? There were no olive trees in the house of God if you think the house of God here is the temple. They didn't have olive trees there. But he could be referring to the tabernacle, which was very possibly positioned at Nob, the city of the priests. He could be referring there to an olive tree. There were many olive trees on the Mount of Olives then, not as many now, because in A.D. 70, the 10th Roman legion cut them down to burn down the city of Jerusalem. You can go to Israel today. There are olive trees on the Mount of Olives, but it has been largely deforested by the 10th Roman legion. But this is an enduring tree, an olive tree. David, it's a metaphor. The other guy is uprooted. But oh, my goodness, I endure like a green olive tree. You can go to a place, again, on the Mount of Olives called the Garden of Gethsemane. In Hebrew, Gatshmanim, olive press, what it means. Go to that garden. And you could pray there at the base of trees, which as seedlings probably existed 2,000 years ago when the Lord Jesus himself made recourse to that very place and prayed to the Father, let this cup pass from me. Same olive trees 2,000 years later. David is saying, I endure not by merit or virtue, but by connection to the righteous God by faith. I have unlike the evildoer, I have made God my refuge. The other one refuses God as refuge. He says, I'm like a green olive tree in the house of God. And then he says, I trust in the loving kindness of God forever and ever. Now, this is just, this whole thing's amazing to me. First, we began with the same word, loving kindness, that we're ending with here. It's in the Hebrew, exactly the same word, chesed. It's as if David is saying, in spite of my sin, in spite of my flaws and all the rest, I feel like I'm, I'm bounded. I'm, I'm in the parentheses of God's chesed love from beginning to end. As he manifested here in the psalm, begins with God's chesed love, ends with God's chesed. He said, that's my life. That characterizes my life. And if you belong to the Lord Jesus, you're surrounded by the chesed love of God from beginning of end to end as well. This is what David ends with. Now, this is amazing to me. He starts off pretty affected by an evildoer and massacre and all the rest. And in the course of pouring out his heart before God, can you see it's quite, it's therapeutic for him. And now he's basking in the reality of the fact that he's in the midst of the unbounded loving kindness of Almighty God. Now, this is why we pray. Now, you can write out your prayers. You can even write songs if you're so inclined, as did David. But at certain times when things are eating you, there are healthy ways to express it before God. Why do you do it? To inform God of what's going on with you? No, he's omniscient. He knows all stuff. You do it to find, just as David did, relief. And in all of his psalms, I notice he moves from oftentimes desperation to praise. In the course of pouring out his heart before is the value of prayer. So he says, I trust in the loving kindness of God forever and ever. And notice what he does in the last verse. Now he turns his remarks directly to God. 
He has moved from an awareness of his own travail, and I'm telling you, it could suffocate you. How's he going to find relief? Start talking to God. Start writing to God. Some of you are better writers than speakers. Articulate your thoughts any way you want to. It could be a song. It could be in prose. It could be in a lyric. It could be in a narrative. It could be in words. Whatever is best for you, start where you are. If you're not ready to praise God at the beginning, don't. If you have a petition, first start with your petition. Don't worry about it. And in the course of getting things out, the intensity of your emotional pain subsides, and you may end up doing what David did at the end, praising God directly. Look, I will give you thanks forever. Now, that's a whole lot different from his starting point. And all that happened, and it wasn't Valium. I don't see any Valium right over here. Uh, all what he did here, he just, he made God his refuge. God was not just his savior from sin. He was his savior from life, from the harsh circumstances of life. He says, I will, I will give you thanks forever because you've done it. I will wait on your name for it is good in the presence of your godly ones. So folks, uh, in closing, let me tell you, David has reminded us that in the world are two types of people. Those who are running from God, those who are running to God. That divides humankind. Now, we choose to divide on more superficial distinctives, gender and race and all the rest, but this is really the divining line. Those who have made God their refuge and those who haven't. One kind of person is quite earth-bound. The other is heaven-bound. One is really stuck on material realities. The other believes spiritual realities are more real than material realities. One uh, craves autonomy from God. The other basks in the atmosphere of the loving kindness of God. Which one are you? Now, uh, uh, you cannot say neither. There is no third option. You're either pursuing God or you're fleeing from God. Those are the options. Which are you? When you figure out which one are you, I want to tell you something. You are forced to live with people different than you. If you're the one running from God, you have contact with those running to God. If you're the one running to God, you have contact with those running from God. What should be our posture towards the other kind of person? If you're the person running from God, I beseech you to take a look at the lives of those running to God. And I'd like you to compare your lifestyle to theirs. They're human like you and imperfect like you, but they got some stuff going for them you don't have. You don't have peace. You don't have contentment. You don't have hope. You don't have a refuge bigger than you to go to. You're just relying on you, and you're a horrible God. So if you're that person, I hope you would take the opportunity to reflect on those of the other kind who are running to God. You compare your lifestyle to theirs, and I'll explain theirs to you. Theirs is not attributed to virtue. Theirs is attributed to a Savior. A Savior saved them from the stuff you're not yet saved from, but can be. So you can cross over from one atmosphere or domain to another yours in the bible is referred to as the domain of darkness theirs is referred to as the kingdom of the beloved son you can cross over not by new year's resolutions or uh, fortitude you cross over by faith by faith in the one who helps you cross over that's jesus on the cross he grabs your hand and he joins it to the King's hand, the Father's hand. That's how you cross over, by faith in Jesus. So if you're that kind of person running from God, see people running to him, compare your respective lifestyles, I hope you're aroused to jealousy and you want theirs. You could. Now, if you're the person running to God, but you work with, live near, who knows, hang out with those running from God, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to pray for that person. You can't return that person's goofball stuff with your own goofball stuff. You can't return evil for evil. You have to respect what is right in the sight of all men. Your options as a citizen of heaven are cut down now. 
You can't approach, you can't give that one a piece of your mind. You have to expose your heart to that person. You have to pray for that person. You have to demonstrate the reality of Christ in you to that person. And when given the opportunity, you have to declare truth to that person. You speak truth to falsehood. You speak light to darkness. That's how we posture ourselves in this world. Now there'll come a day when we won't have to so posture ourselves because as David said, there'll be a time when I thank you forever in the presence of your godly ones. There will be a day when the population will only be godly ones. There won't be those running from God because you have so succeeded in your plan, you got what you wanted. And that has sealed your destiny. In heaven, the ultimate and eternal kingdom of God, there will only be godly ones. Again, that's not a comment on your virtue. A godly one is someone connected to God through faith in the Son of God who mediates the war between us sinful people and a holy God. Jesus is the Prince of Peace who came to make peace between the two of us, the creature and the creator. Then you become a God word or godly one, one redeemed by God. You will be present there in the assembly when David says, one day we will thank and praise you, O God, in the kingdom populated by your godly ones. Now, I'm looking forward to that. Now, I don't know, I don't have a clue what might transpire in my life between now and then. Not a clue. And it bothers me. It sometimes causes me to be sleepless, filled with anxiety and all the rest. What could I tell you? I know that. But in the end, I know the chesed love of God endures. The thing that endures, no matter what happens in this changeable and unstable world, what endures is the chesed love of God, with which I began this spiritual odyssey and with which I will end. That's what happens to the Christ one. That's what happens to the Christian. Now, you may think being a Christian just means going to church. You don't know what you're talking about, do you? Being a Christian means a transfer from one domain to an entirely different domain. Folks, make your decision. I don't want to be in the domain of darkness. See, I come from there. I know what it's like. It's death. And the reason I remember it is so that it would deter me from going back there. I would rather pursue God as refuge. I stumble and fall in the process. So do you. But I'm righteous, not by what I do, but whose I am. I'm in right relationship with God through Jesus, the mediator between God and man. That's not a religious concept at all. Good night. That's a survival plan. That's how you survive. And I look forward to the day being right there with David. You betcha. And singing God's praises in the presence of his godly ones. If you're not there yet, why not? Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy. He does not say, come to me after you clean up your act. No, he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. You don't have rest in the domain of darkness. You're driven. You've got to keep propping up your God, whatever your God is. It's sex, it's gambling, it's consumption of this, that, the other thing. <laughs> you've got to keep propping, you've got to keep adding to it, adding Jesus says, stop that. Come to me. I'll give you rest. You can rest from all that. You can just rest in me. I've done it all for you. And my chesed love will ensure your eternity. One day you'll be in the kingdom of godly ones. And you'll utter praise to me forever. That's what he says. And you'll be saved. From what? From the wrath of God to come. By the way, that word in the Greek is orge. Wrath, from which we get our word orgasm. Graphic, isn't it? God is very aroused when his holiness is violated. And he deals with it. And he either deals with it by pouring out his wrath on you or you accepting the fact that he poured out his wrath on his son for you. Now you tell me which is the better option. 
Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming, for living, for dying, for suffering, for living again, for winning victory over death, for having the final say over death, for recruiting, redeeming, redeeming, buying, redeeming us, (laughs) unworthy ones, considering us to be in right standing, considering us to be your godly ones, and now causing us to remain in the midst of those who don't yet know you for a purpose. We're supposed to have a contagious effect on them. I pray we would. And for those, O God, who for whatever reason have been uncomfortable with your goodness and are running from you, I pray, O God, they would repent. That means change direction and instead run to you. Be enveloped by your chesed love from beginning to end. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, folks. Hope to see you next time.